earlier. Um, you know, before that time, we thought that, uh, uh, of course, we want uh, more people to get vaccinations. Uh, if um, 90% or at least 85% of the people get vaccinated, then we have a safe uh, community and uh, people, you know, would be happy to go out to, to eat. Uh, otherwise, uh, we are quite worried about, um, you know, going into uh, places mm-hmm. which are crowded with people. Uh, just like um, yesterday when we heard that, um, you know, some uh, uh, government officials, uh, you know, attend a party and uh, they, um, well, they're being affected by <laughs> By the spreading of the uh, some kind of uh, uh, some people who, who has the carrier of the uh, coronavirus, and um, this is not, you know, we don't want to see this happen, and uh, we hope that uh, more people can uh, get the jabs. Mr. Wong, thank you very much for joining me this morning. That's Simon Wong, president of the Hong Kong Federation of Restaurants and Related Trades. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio Three. Final look at the markets for this morning, where we're seeing a rally in Asian stocks. The SX200 in Sydney up 1.4%. Uh, the Nikkei 225 in Japan is also up over 1% now. Cosby in South Korea, similar story there, up about 1.1%. Looks like we're going to see a rally in the Hang Seng as well at the open. Futures markets pointing to a gain of about 130 points. In the commodities markets, uh, Brent crude oil slightly lower at $81.95 a barrel. Gold pretty steady at $1,792 an ounce. Thank you very much for listening this week. Do have a great weekend. Please join me again on Monday morning. Coming up after the news, back chats with Janice Wong and Andrew Work and the weather forecast. Mainly fine, cool in the morning, maximum temperature of around 22 degrees during the day and it's going to be mainly fine over the weekend. Temperature right now is 18 degrees, 82% relative humidity. It's 8.32. Here's Andrew Shorosky with the half-hour news. Two senior officials who've been sent to quarantine have apologized for going to a banquet attended by a woman who later tested preliminary positive for COVID. The Home Affairs Secretary, Casper Choi, and Alan Fung, a political assistant to the Development Bureau, were among at least 11 officials present. Most left before the COVID patient arrived. The event was hosted by Whitman Hung, a local deputy to the National Legislature, reportedly to celebrate his birthday. Executive Counselor and Lawmaker Regina Ipp says she was surprised to hear that so many officials were there. Well, it's not just Casper. I was surprised that so many senior officials would attend one birthday party. I myself, I find that I don't really have much time for partying. When the government was already aware of the Omnicom threat, you know, that so many senior officials would congregate at, at a social event. A labor unionist fears unemployment could return to over 7% if a fifth wave of COVID infections persists for more than six months. Legislator Lam Chung Sing from the Federation of Hong Kong and Kowloon Labor Unions says he accepts the need for COVID control measures but is concerned about their impact on workers. He called on the government to provide workers with compensation. The government can provide some compensation for those industries, especially for those industries affected by the social distance measure. Uh, Because for many uh, beauty and massage establishments, some employers uh, before 
they they maybe share uh, the benefit with the employees, but not at at the end of the years. But now they may cancel the year end bonus uh, to the employees, and I think for the employers, it's difficult for them to operate. Five overnight lockdown and testing operations have concluded, with no cases being found at blocks in Aplechao, Taipo, North Point, Happy Valley, and Ma'an Shan. In total, some 3,300 residents were given tests. President Biden has accused Donald Trump of holding a dagger to the throat of American democracy in his most heated attack yet on his predecessor. In a speech marking the first anniversary of the storming of Congress by Mr. Trump's supporters, President Biden accused him of spinning a web of lies and trying to rewrite history. He blamed Mr. Trump's refusal to accept his election defeat as the spark for an armed insurrection. They didn't come here out of patriotism or principle. They came here in rage not in service of America, but rather in service of one man. Those who incited the mob, the real plotters. And that's the news from RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Back Chat with Janice Wong and me, Andrew Work. Today is Friday, January the 7th, and today we are talking about housing issues for the people in the first part of the show. In the second half, we'll discuss tennis star Novak Djokovic getting no love in the home of Kangas and Wallabies as he is shut out of Australia and the Australian Open, or is he? But first, housing. Chief Executive Kerry Lam has unveiled measures to make housing more livable and more affordable in an attempt to tackle Hong Kong's serious housing issues. Authorities have set a minimum flat size requirement of 280 square feet on new projects built on government land. The new rule will be tested in Twin Mun, where 2,020 flats will be built with tenders coming out in the next quarter. Secretary for Development Michael Wong said the new measure is expected to cover about 13% of the city's private housing supply. Meanwhile, the government is also considering a new mortgage scheme for subsidized flats so it's easier for people to get on the housing ladder and become property owners. After 9.15, we'll talk about world number one tennis player Novak Djokovic as Australia cancelled his entry visa following a backlash over a vaccine exemption granted for him to play in the Australian Open that is now going to court. Let us know what you think. You can leave a message on our Facebook page, Backchat on RTHK Radio 3, email us at backchat at rthk.hk, or just give us a call at 2338-8266. Janice Wong, uh, you're going to introduce our, our guest today. I'm excited to hear from them. Sure, Andrew. Um, in our Admiralty studio, we have uh, Ryan Ip, the head of uh, land and research at our Hong Kong Foundation. On the line, we have Dr. Rita Lee, an associate professor of economics and finance at Xi'an University, and Lao Cheng Kuang, the managing director of Asia Valuation and Advisory Services of Colliers. He's also a member of the Housing Authority. Good morning to all of you. Good morning. Good morning. All right. Morning. Uh, morning. Maybe um, we can start with you, Mr. Ip. Um, so the government has set a minimum flat size of a 280 square feet for all um, new housing projects built on government land. What do you think of the size? Are nano flats what Hong Kong needs? Well, I think uh, obviously I think that is a very good first step because uh, as many have pointed out, we have a lot of nano flats that is being built, especially in the last five years. We have some uh, research figures showing that uh, uh, the, 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 the trend 
of uh, Lano flats has actually been increasing uh, in the last five years. Obviously, because first because of a lack of supply, and secondly because of the uh, affordability issue. So I think it's a very good step for the government to set the minimum flat size. Uh, but I think it is only uh, just a first step. Uh, Two hundred eighty square feet is not bad, but uh, if you took if you put two people inside a 280 square feet uh, units. Uh, so the per capita uh, space is only 140 square feet. Uh, it is still rather low, uh, considering that if you look at places like Singapore, their per capita living space is 270 square feet. So, uh, but uh, I guess uh, it Th is that's a, that's a minimum or an average for Singaporeans? Average. Average. That's average. Okay. But then, uh, but I think that is uh, sensible to set a rather conservative, conservative figure uh, in the first place, because uh, obviously we still have a very serious supply issues. But uh, hopefully, I think the government should uh, gradually increase this figure uh, once the supply is getting you know more stable, once the uh, uh, housing prices is getting more stable. Which is probably going to be never. <laughs> we do live in Hong Kong after all. Why 280? Why not 250? Why not 300? How did they arrive at that precise figure? Uh, let me quote the uh, figures. Uh, let me quote the saying from the government. Uh, they, they obviously they have uh, some formula behind that. Uh, what they said is uh, previously they have another site uh, that is for the sub uh, starter homes that was sold. Uh, and that site has a minimum size of a minimum flat size of 250 square feet. And according to the government's uh, explanations, well, they said this site is a for private housing, right? So uh, obviously, a, a private housing should have a, a little bit better living environment than a subsidized housing. So they said a you know a 10 percent you know 10 percent higher than the uh, starters home site would be suitable. So, uh, well, 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 that is what they said. But uh, I guess um, I think the figure itself is not really important. Uh, what is important is what, there's, uh, what the government doing is they sort of give a signal to the market uh, to, to, to indicate that, well, we are not tolerating this sort of land or flat anymore. So I think the signaling effect is more important than the actual figure. All right. Mm. Let's uh, now bring in uh, Dr. Lee. Um, so, so Dr. Lee, Mr. Ip just now he says uh, this a uh, 280 square feet requirement is a good first step. It's not bad. Um, but what kind of message does this uh, figure or this this requirement send uh, to developers? Well, actually, uh, to developers, uh, to developers, it just tells them that they can no they can no longer. Uh, uh, provide such a small size of the, uh, of the units. Say, for instance, in the past, we have got T plus in Trimble, which is a very well-known example of a land no flat building. And the tiniest uh, unit is only like 128 square feet. And each flat is actually, you can you can, you can imagine that it's like smaller than a standard parking space for the private cars. So it just implies that uh, to the developer that they can no longer build such a uh, land no flat, uh, which is like harmful to the, uh, to, to, to uh, those residents who live in, like for example, they may have got it 80% uh, higher of the mental distress uh, 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 than compared to uh, if they do not live in a very uh, extremely small size of the level flat, for example. 
So actually, uh, this actually could be a very good sign to uh, avoid uh, to developers that by the time they decide they have to think about like what is uh, what is it like beneficial to those who live in for that unit. Yeah, but I mean, it, it does kind of raise this question. I mean, like, uh, you know, as, as Ryan said, it was 10% or 10, 25% more than the last time. Um, so where did they come with the original number? I mean, is there any kind of mental health science being put into this or an expectation of, you know, if people are going to be happier or, or is it an economic decision or is it an engineering decision? I mean, what is driving the, the ultimate thing? Is it just keeping up with Singapore? I mean, what is the, the thinking behind it? Rita, you're going to have to hold the microphone you're using closer to your mouth because it's really hard to hear you. Huh? Oh, uh, hold on. Um, yeah, I, I'm not using the microphone here, but okay. just the uh, just the mobile phone as as people. Still and close. then, uh, so yeah. So actually, it, uh, so sorry. Can you repeat the question? So, so where is there any mental? Is there mental health research? Is there economics or engineering that is part of the thought process of determining these numbers? Actually, that is like uh, sort of uh, a kind of like uh, they they have got a kind of a research that is about like ten percent or thirty percent that is about the size uh, that it is like smallest one, so that they try to remove the lowest boundary of the ten percent or thirty percent of the uh, of the uh, housing units that is a, so, such a small size unit, and then uh, to some extent that uh, uh, why they have got a this kind of a consideration, uh, as that is related to those uh, previous research. Like for example, if that is like too small, too, too small in size, and then like this sort of a size, that they could have got a negative impact on the well-being. Like for example, withdrawal and difficulties in concentrating, especially among the children. And then uh, in uh, Nivida, for example, previously, they have found that the crowd-related stress, like, for example, uh, living in a small apartment can lead to the increased rates in domestic violence and also substance abuse. So that uh, there are actually some kind of research that is related to the size of the units and so as, like, uh, the mental health situation and scenario. And then for economic-wise, I think uh, that is, like, uh, it's actually linked with, like, uh, if the size is too, too large, for example, then of course that uh, the number of units that you can supply is uh, uh, it, it will cripple the number of the units that you can supply in the market. So it affects the uh, supply in the market in itself. Uh, before that we have got like new territories, uh, northern part of the developments, and so it's a, uh, the land touch mall uh, that is fixed. Okay, so that uh, that is sort of like related to the supply issue of the economic side. Mm. And then uh, of course that is also related to whether or not that. Uh, whether or not that there is like some kind of like uh, individuals that uh, they are happy with like this sort of the size as well. So by the time you sell it, we also have to consider whether or not that it is uh, still, even though that it is small, but it is acceptable to some of them. Right. Okay. Lao La- Chung Kong from uh, Colliers. Uh, what? How is the market reacting to this? Ryan Ip said it was a message to the market. Uh, well, what are they taking from this? Uh, Lao Chung Kong. Um, to the market in itself, the message is uh, very clear that they no longer would like to see such a small size in unit. They no longer, like just in the past, they would like to see a lot of the small size unit. Uh, as uh, like for example, they they have no uh, individual bedroom. Uh, they 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 are just like open uh, open units, and then uh, uh, they try to put it into what they call it as a pipe like uh, flat. Or the flat is so small that it's like just kind of like a kind of a punishment 
as like for example with the police prisons uh, that is like pretty small in in itself. So uh, they would like to uh, they would like to turn this uh, uh, they would l- like to provide the message to the market that we don't want to see such a small size unit. So by the time they plan, because they depend on the time they plan, they have to uh, plan it for a long time. Mm. So in the long run, it means that probably they have to design some of the flats that is larger instead of like as small as what we have now. Sure. Uh, not only consider those like affordability issue, but we also have to consider that it's like the living quality issue instead. Gotcha. Lao Chong Kong, is the market getting the message? Um, um, uh, sorry, Rita, we're, we're going to ask Lao Chong Kong from Colliers to get in there? Yeah. I think, I mean, we are yet to see what the reactions from the market because right now, I mean, the, the government has just announced the, um, the requirement or the minimum requirement of um, these of fast. But the sale of the two moon site is yet to happen. So this is the first step. And the next step we are yet to see is whether this I mean, procedure or this requirement will be applied to future land sales and also whether this will be applied to all the lease modification or new land grant, I mean, um, exchange with the developers. But one sector which would not be governed by this yet would be that sort of, I mean, uh, urban redevelopment projects held by the um, park developers that within the government lease, they don't, I mean, they would not have such requirement. When we look at urban redevelopment projects, I mean, um, right now handled by the ULA, um, they have already previously set certain requirement for minimum size, and the current standard used by URA is more than 280 square feet. Mm-hmm. Uh, what my um, observation is that within the next two, three years, these sort of nanofacts will still be on the market because those projects, which they have, I mean, already started, the, for example, the, the construction or the foundation, um, the developers may not, I mean, um, want to change the um, design for the time being. But in the future, I mean, um, for those projects which are under planning right now, I do have this sort of observation that if I were a developer, then I need to take care of the sentiment in the market when people, I mean, or buyers, they may not like to see, I mean, um, that many nanofacts to be supplied to the market. Yeah. It is likely, very likely, that um, these are small units, for example, less than 200 square feet, they will disappear from the market. Mm. And that, I mean, um, I would say more decent size would become the trend in the future. Yeah, because I know what you mean. There's, there's a new place that just opened on Robinson Road. Uh, you know, it looks like they're trying to market as a very upscale style living. And I, I actually uh, went by the showrooms at IFC. and They were tiny. I mean, you couldn't invite somebody over. Yeah, I mean, you, you could literally sit on your sofa and touch your, your TV on the far wall. Um, the bedroom could barely fit a bed. And this was like being marketed as an upscale lifestyle option. Um, so, so is the private sector still supply? You say the private sector is in the process of building these. Uh, is this? Yeah. We're going to see a lot more of these. But even, even up the upscale market has these tiny flats. <laughs> yeah, because you, you need to, to see that. I mean, the, the upscale feeling comes from the location, um, the mid-levels. Mm-hmm. But um, the, the so-called emergence of the nanofast is a, is a byproduct of the government measures in relating to stamp duty uh, and also the mortgage ratio. This is how this has been, I mean, um, so-called created as, I mean, an, an unintended consequences of the demand measures 
or demand management measures in the residential market. And for developers, if they want to buy from the government, for example, I mean, a pile of land, they need to calculate the maximum price that they can offer. And only if they look at the market, oh, these sort of nanofats will create the highest unit rate, and then they can come up with the highest land price. This is how they bid for the government land and also to do the land exchange. On the other hand, if the developers, I mean, assemble those land from the um, public market, that means assemble different flats from, I mean, the whole building, and then they want to derive the maximum benefit for their company, they still need to consider whether they need to build these of small flats in order to drive the highest unit rate, I mean, for per square foot-wise. Um, Ryan Ip, uh, Chong Kong mentioned unintended consequences. It, it started with the three spicy taxes back in the day to uh, try and rein in the market. Are, are those taxes having those kinds of unintended consequences? Are, are they part of the problem now? Yeah, I, I partly agree with uh, CK. I think uh, actually the, uh, the, 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 the one of the measures that is having the uh, biggest effect is actually the mortgage requirements. Uh, because obviously, uh, people buying this uh, land of flats is obviously because these flats are more affordable, uh, and uh, because they can back in the days because a lot of these flats are below the price of uh, six million, so they can apply for you know ninety percent mortgage, and actually, uh, 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 when the government relaxed the mortgage requirement for first-time buyers back in 2019, uh, we sort of see a, 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 a change of attitude uh, from the developers. Um, um, now we expect, uh, what, what, what I've been saying is that we have seen an increasing trend uh, of nanoflats in the past five years, but uh, now we expect the um, it will actually pick out the completion of nanofast will actually pick out uh, in this years, and uh, it will actually uh, uh, def- uh, decrease by half uh, uh, by 2024. It is mainly because you know because uh, people are more affordable f- uh, to buying larger flats because uh, because of the realization of mortgage, so that um, the demand for nanofats are actually uh, flattening out, especially in. Uh, law on urban areas. Uh, in urban areas, uh, there's still demand because in urban areas, uh, the unit price is still high, but uh, in new territories or other areas, because uh, the unit price are lower and because of uh, the mortgage requirements have been relaxed, uh, we saw a, uh, a reduction in demand in these units. Yeah, Rita, you're the economist and it's all about incentives. Uh, you know, what is your take on, on the taxes and, and, and mortgage requirements and what impact are they having? Uh, I, I think the uh, biggest effect is really the mortgage requirements. Mm. Uh, I have a lot of friends. Uh, they are young professionals. You know, they they have a decent jobs. Uh, they they can they 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 can uh, do the monthly repayments, right? They can calculate the figures. But what they do not have is they do not have enough down payments. And mm. So I think um, uh, the, the the down payments and the mortgage requirement is is one of the keys. Dr. Dr. Lee, what is your take on the uh, taxes and mortgage requirements and their impact on behavior? Rita? Well, yeah. well actually, for the uh, special mortgage requirements, uh, it is actually uh, it will uh, be like beneficial uh, at the 
very beginning, substantially reduce the financial burden of not so wealthy people who intend to purchase the flats under the housing ownership scheme or the green farm subsidized home ownership scheme in the first 10 years. So say, for instance, uh, if they have got a 400 square feet of home ownership scheme uh, uh, in like 2.79 million of housing, uh, for example, uh, as a housing price, then the down payment will drop substantially from like $279,000 to $140,000, while the monthly payment mortgage will drop substantially from around $11,000 to around $5,000 only. So uh, that actually implies that it, it, at the very at the very beginning of the 10 years that it will be beneficial to them. But this also implies that if they, they have to pay more after like 10 years, uh, like the burden can be double. So this is to a certain extent motivate those who join the plan to work well and accumulate wealth in the first 10 years so that they can afford to pay substantially more uh, after like 10 years or so. Uh, but then uh, this actually also have got some of the implications, like for example the housing price fluctuation problem, where uh, uh, where the people may sell the flats like uh, together. <laughs> A lot of them they sell the flats uh, sell the flats together like ten years later uh, because of like for example the housing price fluctuation or uh, the labor market will also change that will affect uh, these people who uh, these people's affordability. So all these, however, can be actually helped by uh, providing the insurance, where the insurance can cover these sort of the problem that is unexpected. And then uh, this is the thing for which that it will, it will be feasible uh, in terms of like uh, this sort of arrangement. Hmm. Is this sort of insurance uh, currently well established or is this a new market to be developed? Of course, that is not yet available in the market. So that's why that I put forward, I think, uh, there's something for which that we always see that, that no matter it's the labor market or the housing market, they have got like this sort of like, fluctuations. And then, uh, so that's why that we usually have got some kind of uh, financial institutions to help. And then uh, for which that I think this will be some sort of thing that is like we can consider. And then to, to ensure that this sort of people, because the majority of them, they, uh, you can see that they actually, they are, uh, they are like sort of like grassroots. Uh, they are not very wealthy. And then, uh, so that this will be, uh, uh, this will be sort of uh, the thing that you can help them uh, is touch wood that there's both of them that they have got some of the changes in the market that it can help them. Yeah, because I mean, when you talk about this big jump in the mortgage payments after the first 10 years, I mean, nobody's going to hold, people are going to buy those planning to unload them within the 10 years, yes? Uh, well, actually, within the 10 years, that is like the price is uh, the, 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 uh, the payment, of course, is substantially less. Uh, but then uh, we also have to note that after 10 years, actually. Uh, so no matter what, you have to pay the remaining part, right? So mm-hmm. if you need to pay the remaining part, it means that you have to pay a lot more or like uh, substantially more. But of course, in, we try to look at it as like, for example, 10 years of time that you should have got a lot of time to prepare for the future. Uh, you can like have got a job promotion, and then you you can have got some of the changes that motivate you to like uh, to to store more money. Then uh, ten years time may be long enough to 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 do so. But uh, as well as that, uh, no matter if the labor market or like uh, the housing market, it does not mean that all the way through it just goes up. Yes. So uh, yeah. CK, uh, what do you think? Should people still be buying these these flats when they come out? The the two hundred and eighty range is this is, is this good buy given your your mark, take on the market? Um, if we are looking at the public market rather than looking at the subsidized housing, I mean, um, I would say I mean two hundred and eighty square feet. I mean, type of flat uh, are still very small, uh, and um, 
personally, I have concern about, I mean, um, their sort of marketability in the future. Of course, as Ryan said, I mean, it, it really depends on, I mean, the location. We are within the urban area, the demand would be better. But for those of, I mean, non-core area, I mean, whether people would still like to rent them or buy them in the future, it is still a big question mark. Okay. Uh, Ryan, if you're going to be staying with us after the break, yeah? Yep. Okay, fantastic. Um, so, Rita Lee, can we get a final word on you as, as we go out? Just, uh, you know, we talked mostly about the valuations and the impact that taxes and mortgages were having on this. But, I mean, are people really going to be happier living in these flats? Uh, I mean, bigger's better, but is it big uh, enough? Um, you, you mean, would they be uh, happier if they have got, like, 280 square foot for, like, uh, for for this sort of arrangement, yeah, is it enough? Uh, actually, I think um, uh, for the two hundred eighty, it is not really large. As you see, that a lot of the housing unit, one hundred forty, maybe one bathroom only. Two hundred eighty, you can just consider it as a two hundred uh, two bedroom, but nothing, no more kitchen, no bathroom. So that two hundred eighty, it is. I would just say that it is a sort of like. We consider the market, we consider the supply, we consider these all sort of things, and then we just come up into like 280 square feet. But then it is not really, uh, it is still not uh, an ideal case uh, in uh, most of us uh, eyes, uh, point of view. So that's why that still that we, we have to consider, like for example, whether or not that we can try to change some of the uh, school where they have to be closed down and then uh, they, they have no more students. Uh, these schools can be actually turn it into some of, some of the housing units. Okay. All right, uh, like, all right uh, Dr. Lee, I'm afraid uh, we have to take a short break for the news summary. Thanks again for joining us this morning. And that's uh, Dr. Rita Lee, an Associate Professor of Economics and Finance at Xuyan University. And uh, also many thanks to Lao Chen Kuang, the Managing Director of Asia Valuation and Advisory Services of Colliers. And uh, Mr. Ip, you'll be staying with us for a bit longer so we can uh, discuss more after the news when we'll be joined by Raymond Chan, a former President of the Hong Kong Institute of Surveyor. And uh, just a quick look at the weather. Um, it'll be mainly fine with a maximum temperature of around uh, 22 degrees. Right now is 18 degrees, relative humidity 78%. So our comments on today's topic, feel free to contact us. Our email is backchat at rchk.hk. Our telephone number is 233-88266. And our Facebook page is backchat on RTHK Radio 3. Still with us on the program is Ryan Ip, the head of land and housing at our Hong Kong Foundation. And joining us now is Raymond Chan, a former president of the Hong Kong Institute of Surveyors, who is also a member of the Housing Authority. Good morning to you. Morning. Morning. Um, in the first half of our program, we were discussing the uh, 280 square feet requirement set by the government for uh, future housing projects on government land. Um, Mr. Ip thinks uh, it's a good first step. It's uh, not a bad um, idea. Um, what do you think, Mr. Chan? I also think that it is a good idea. Good why? I, I think that it is a good idea. Yeah, but why do you think it's a good idea? And is it enough? Like, why 280? Why not 350? Uh, we need to be practical. Uh, if you are aiming for uh, some small unit for, say, a single-person uh, occupancy, uh, 280, uh, I think it's a reasonable uh, size. Uh, I think that the, the, well, the government... Is what it's doing is uh, trying to give a, 
a guidance on the, the minimum size that we should be producing. Now we notice, let's notice that uh, the government is not uh, changing the the law to limit or to uh, illegalize uh, any uh, small size unit uh, because uh, some people think that uh, oh, we have to demand. Uh, we don't say that uh, it is not illegal to do so. So the government now is taking the lead to give a guidance on what is the, the minimum size that the government thinks is suitable uh, for the for the market. Uh, personally, I think that uh, the really the what we uh, regard as the the mini size uh, unit, which is uh, too small, I think, uh, is not uh, long-lasting demand market. After some time, uh, people will find out that uh, these uh, uh, small units will not be too marketable, uh, especially on the second-hand uh, market. After people think that, obviously you'll find out that uh, uh, the practical use of that is uh, uh, not that uh, 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 to pedicle in, in normal life. Yeah, yeah, especially for families. I've got an email here from one of our one of our uh, one of the people that writes into us, um, who's really not impressed with nanoflats. Says some of the nanoflats, uh, the design of the nanoflats is a disgrace. He says the government knows we have a severe mental illness problem in Hong Kong due to small flats, putting pressure on the health service, um, and he's concerned that people in the middle class are just spending money on rent, and you know they just spend money on rent and their quality of life deteriorates. But he also says that bigger properties with more rooms should be encouraged so whole families, including grandparents, can live together and not put a burden on old folks' homes. Um, is that an objective that we should be working towards? Is like creating, you know, instead of just saying, oh, just strictly talking about the size of the flats, but having appropriate flat sizes for appropriate situations. You know, maybe, maybe nano flats are okay for singles, but if you want to have a whole family with children and maybe even grandparents, we need a different solution? Uh, I think uh, we... Uh, must uh, not disregard the uh, very fact that uh, many youngsters uh, they move out of their uh, family from their parents. Uh, well, it has a uh, bigger size in their back, in their parents' uh, uh, unit, uh, but still they prefer to, to move out. Uh, that is uh, something uh, more of a society nature. Uh, and also it is uh, quite internationally uh, recognized as trend, not only in Hong Kong, in, in all countries, everywhere, everywhere in, in, in the world, this is happening. And uh, while it is uh, good to think that uh, a bigger size unit uh, can accommodate a whole generations, but uh, it is not happening. Uh, so we have to uh, admit that uh, uh, that is uh, the demand is, and that is uh, what people would like to do. And uh, even in uh, other countries, like in the United States, uh, where they have a much bigger house, still those youngsters move out to live on their own on small units. Yeah, going to university and living in a dorm—that's the dream, man. <laughs> 
<laughs> Mr. Chan, I know you are a uh, member of the Housing Authority. Can I can I ask you a bit about uh, the, the the HA's announcement yesterday? It said uh, it has uh, recorded a surplus of ten billion dollars this year, and it estimates that it will have enough funds to build uh, one hundred thousand public flats over the next five years. Um, what real impact do you think it will have on the uh, waiting time of public housing? Will uh, it the, the Housing Authority is a uh, uh, reasonably uh, uh, saying that uh, it is uh, making uh, a good effort in trying to uh, tackle the housing problem. And uh, the surface that it has uh, is good uh, to really um, make the job easier. And uh, I, I must uh, give credit to the to the staff of the housing department in uh, making uh, such good. Uh, uh, so the uh, HA says it will be able to build one hundred thousand public flats over the next five years. Do you think that will shorten the waiting time for public housing? Right now, it's around six years, right? Surely. Uh, I think uh, that will uh, shorten the waiting time because uh, during the uh, past recent years, uh, we have been falling behind our target uh, quite a bit. And uh, so it makes uh, the waiting time uh, getting longer and longer every year. And uh, now they are really making some progress uh, because uh, more land is... Uh, being supplied to uh, build the whole housing. Uh, well, the, I must say that the housing authority or the housing department is quite uh, helpless in uh, getting the land supplied because it is really, we, are, we cannot get the land uh, subjectively. We have to be, we are such a recipient. Uh, we have to receive land from government. And, uh, and after receiving any land from government, I noticed that the housing department staff are quite diligent uh, in uh, getting the projects done uh, in the uh, shortest uh, period of time. Mm. Uh, so I think uh, that is good. Um, Mr. Ip, what do you think? And do you think uh, building 100,000 uh, public flats over the next five years will uh, be able to reduce the waiting time for public uh, housing by much? I think the uh, housing authority is obviously working very hard, but unfortunately, uh, uh, I think 100,000 100, uh, units over the next five years is seriously not enough. Uh, it is uh, shot by 30% by the government's own target. And uh, we sort of done a little bit... Uh, projections and uh, uh, with the current trajectory uh, with only 100,000 uh, public housing units being built in the next five years uh, the waiting time the, the, the waiting time is not gonna go down is it's gonna go up uh, it's gonna go up uh, above six years very soon uh, so um, I have to say I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit pessimistic on this how soon will it go up by uh, more than six years <laughs> Very soon, uh, uh, this uh, this year. Uh, uh, currently, it was five or nine years. So I expect uh, it will go above uh, six years uh, within uh, this year. 
Yeah, and I mean, there's, we've talked about that on the show before. There's no limit to how many people want to apply for cut rate flats in Hong Kong, and I, I unfortunately know people that have done things like had one of their spouses quit a forty-five thousand dollar a month job so they could qualify for public housing, and then she went back to work right away <laughs> at the same salary. I mean, you know, people are gaming the system all over the place. Um, I have a question here, just changing gears a little bit, and Ryan, I, th- I think you'll you'll be able to answer this. And maybe we didn't make it clear. Is the 280 square feet only applicable to public housing, or is it for private housing as well? But right. that's not really the case. I think I think in this case, it is for flats built on government land, right? Yeah, I think this 280 uh, square feet requirements is uh, applied on private housing, but it's only those private housing that is built on government land. Uh, and currently, it is only a testing program. It is only a pilot program. It is only applied on one site that is being that is uh, going to be sold in Tumun, and the government is considering, uh, depending on the effect of this sale, the government is considering whether it will apply to uh, other sites, other government sites as well. But as CK said, it it won't be applied on redevelopments uh, because it is only applied on uh, the government site. Right. So that, that answers our email from uh, from Shaw. Thank you very much for that email. Um, so, I mean, you know, earlier you said it's going to send a message. So, I mean, you said this is just one site that the government is putting out for, for developers. But are other developers going to see that and say, hmm, if I make applications for other projects I want to do, I better be over 280? Yeah, I, I, I think so. Because, uh, but, 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 but I have to say, I have to say this, it only depends on, uh, it also depends on the size of the sites. Uh, this uh, sites from uh, Tumun is a relatively large site, uh, so it is uh, relatively okay because uh, you know uh, it, it is uh, it, uh, it is more flexible in terms of flat mixings. But uh, for some smaller sites or those with you know irregular layouts, the flexibility of flat mixing flat mixings may already be limited, right? So uh, if you put this restriction on, it will further reduce. Uh, the flexibility of flat mixing on smaller sites. So I think it is, I have to say, not every site would be suitable of having this uh, requirement. Okay, so I think a lot of people saw the headlines and thought, oh, this is the new minimum for any flat built in Hong Kong forever and ever. This is a new, but that's not the case no, at all, case. is it? No, okay. All right. Uh, um, just just one final question. Uh, the the housing authority um, yesterday it also said it has tightened the resale restriction on subsidized flats to curb speculation. Mister Ip, um, do you think that will work? Uh, I have to say, I I I won't think that will work. Uh, uh, we need to think about why the prices of this resale public housing are high. It's because there's a high demand, right? And because there's not enough supply, and if we sort of res- restrict. Uh, if you further tighten the resale restrictions, the practical effect is you're gonna squeeze up the supply further, right? So there will be less supply, and the price will go even higher. So I think that will not solve the, the uh, that will not solve the the, the 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 issue. So what do you think is the best solution for that? I think the best solution is actually to uh, one is to increase supply, increase increase the first hand supply. Uh, uh, for sure. The second one is, uh, uh, it will be rather, it will be rather counterintuitive, counterintuitive is to sort of uh, relax the resale restrictions because by relaxing the resale restrictions, you will sort of increase the supply in the secondary market, and you know, 
having more supply, you 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 have a better chance to sort of uh, stable the price. All right, so we'll have, it, have to leave it there for now. But uh, thanks again for joining us this morning. That's uh, Ryan Ip, Head of Land and Housing Research at our Hong Kong Foundation. Also, many thanks to Raymond Chan, a uh, member of the Housing Authority, and uh, he's also the uh, former president of uh, the Hong Kong Institute of Surveyors. It's now 16 minutes past nine, and let's uh, move on to our final topic today. And that's about world number one men's tennis player Novak Djokovic, who has been denied entry into Australia amid a storm of protest about a decision to grant him a medical exemption from COVID-19 vaccination requirements to play in the Australian Open. For the latest developments, we're joined on the line now by journalist Tracy Holmes from ABC News. Good morning, Tracy. Hello, Tracy. Hello, Andrew. Hello, Janice. Hi, good morning. Welcome to Backchat. Um, so is Novak Djokovic still stuck in an immigration hotel fighting deportation? Right, so he's been granted, um, there's been an an injunction taken out against the deportation order, effectively, and uh, the case will be heard in the Melbourne court on Monday from 10am. So until that case is over, uh, he's allowed to stay here, but the conditions in which he's staying um, are a hotel that normally houses um, immigrants that are in detention and uh, not permitted uh, very much freedom, and uh, he'll be locked up there until uh, the court case resumes with a with a determination one way or the other. Maybe he will be allowed to stay and compete at the Australian Open or alternatively uh, the um, cancellation of his visa will stand and he'll be deported. And I've heard some pushback on this term locked up. Uh, apparently he, he's free to go back to the airport in his private jet and fly out any time he wants. Is that the case? Uh, that is what uh, the Australian government's line is. Um, yeah. So effectively he's he's free only to leave. <laughs> yeah, so, gotcha. So apparently he does want to play in this tournament. It is important enough to him to lawyer up and f- try to fight this, uh, this revocation of his, of his visa that he was granted. Is that in fair? In some ways, you know, perhaps it's more than just playing in the tennis tournament. Uh, from his point of view, and I think listening to what his parents and others had to say at a, a, a rally that was held in Belgrade overnight, um, it's about uh, fairness and justice. And so every um, every point that was put in front of Novak before arriving here, uh, he addressed. So he requested an exemption. It went to two different medical panels. He was granted that exemption. Uh, Then he applied for a visa. He was given a visa. And the same department that issued that visa uh, then rejected the visa when he landed in Australia sometime later. So from his point of view and and supporters of uh, Novak Djokovic, um, he he fulfilled everything he was asked to fulfil. And so he doesn't know why he's in this situation. And that is what he's challenging. Okay, I've got an email here from uh, from Leon, and, and there's there's a point in it that I think we're going to have to refute right near the beginning because I think it's in error. But he says, uh, "Well done, the Aussie government in not allowing Djokovic into the country." In contrast, the Australian Tennis Authority, which had earlier opted to grant him an exemption, looked like Muppets. Uh, Djokovic's anti-vax stance is well known, and he has now got his just desserts. He is arrogance personified, and that is why, despite his massive cash of Grand Slam trophies, he'll never be as popular as Federer and Nadal. Um, so I guess the first thing is he says the tennis authority granted him an exemption, I guess an exemption to play in the tournament, because, of course, they don't control visas. Yeah, 
So the Tennis Authority did no, say... No, that's exactly right. Okay. But uh, the exemption was a medical exemption, and that was given by the Victorian government. And okay. right up until Wednesday morning, even our Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, was saying that health issues such as those uh, and medical exemptions are the, the domain of state-based governments. And that is who issued this medical exemption. Right. Uh, but then it is up to the federal government to determine who comes into the country and why. Uh, the, the interesting point to that, of course, is that others have been given um, similar medical exemptions to come into Victoria and to prepare and train for the Australian Open. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they were allowed to walk through immigration and to you know, move on to the accommodation they had booked and to start preparing for the tournament. Um, that was not a fortune to know that job of it. No, I, I, yeah, but a Djokovic situation seems to have uh, attracted attention that I understand those athletes are now also under re-examination. And this, this antipathy Leon has, uh, I've heard from some other people from Melbourne, and apparently it's quite widespread, which was what prompted the federal government to get involved. Uh, a friend of mine from Melbourne you know, said, listen, they won't be able to have the tournament because people will be booing and throwing things on the court. I mean, apparently this is a hugely popular move by the federal government and unpopular to let them in. Am I correct? Or is that, is that, that's what I'm hearing. Is that right? It's hugely popular. And uh, any time that, you know, polls look like they're on a downward trend for governments, um, one of the very easy things they can pull out is discussions about our borders and maintaining the safety of our borders. Now, I'm not saying that is the only reason or, or any of the reasons that this has happened this time round, um, but it is well documented. People have done studies on this. People research it. Oh, yeah. People are aware. And it always goes well in the polls. You know, when governments crack down and, and start talking about being tough on our borders and who we're letting in. And, of course, the overlay for all of that is the fact that we're now heading into a third year uh, in Australia with incredible um, lockdown situation that we've, we've been experiencing. Every state has had different rules and regulations. It looks like there's about to be another clamp down and it's Victorians that have actually uh, suffered the most under, under the regulations of COVID um, in this country. As we know, you know, people, it's not just difficulty in getting into Australia, it's even difficult to leave. You need to get special permission to leave up until fairly recently um, and so that is the, the, the COVID environment that we're living in. And you said Victoria's been hit particularly hard and that's where Melbourne is located, yeah? Exactly, yes. Yeah, Yeah. okay. So so I mean, this is, so what have we got here? We've got, uh, we've got a state government that said yes. We've got a federal government that caught the popular wave and said no. Uh, is the state government fighting the federal government on this? Are they saying, no, it's our decision. He should be allowed in. No, no. So, but it needs to be pointed out that um, there's been a lot of angst between this federal government and the Victorian uh, state government because the Victorian state government is Labor. Um, the, the federal government is liberal, um, <laughs> a coalition, but uh, majority liberal. So um, you've got that sort of political divide anyway. There has been angst on a number of fronts between these two governments over the past couple of years. Uh, but at the moment, because of this um, popularity wave, uh, I think the state government is stepping back as much as possible. Um, that doesn't help out the organisers of uh, the Australian Open 
who say they've been working incredibly hard just to try and understand, first of all, what the numerous barriers would be for athletes coming in for this Grand Slam tournament, and then working with governments and agencies to determine a way uh, that could kind of pave the way so that athletes knew exactly where they stood, they knew what sort of documentation and what sort of barriers they would need to jump in order to come into Australia, and they believe they put everything in place to do that. And of course, Novak Djokovic's team also believes, um, you know, they did everything that was asked of them, uh, including being granted a visa. Uh, only to have it rejected once he arrived. Uh, so, you know, there's, a, there's another element, um, a group of people who, who are quite right in, in saying, why couldn't this have been solved in a different way? Uh, if it was going to be an issue, why was he allowed on the plane in the first place? Why was the visa granted in the first place if it was going to be cancelled when he arrived? Uh, so there's all of those questions that um, the politicians are not answering specifically at the moment. Uh, but as you point out, they are uh, riding this sort of wave of support because of the, um, the the statements that Djokovic has made previously about uh, you know not wanting to have vaccinations. Uh, there's a lot of people that disagree with that. Obviously, we're a country that's more than 90% vaccinated, uh, and you know, people feel that he has been given his just desserts and shouldn't be allowed into the country and potentially put people at risk. I mean, yeah, we probably need to provide some background context for our for our listeners. I mean, Djokovic is a kind of famous anti-vaxxer. He caught COVID after hosting a big party when Serbia was supposed to be under lockdown, um, flies in on his private jet. I mean, that all seems kind of the antithesis of high-vax, uh, you know, or very, very quarantine-sensitive egalitarian Australians. Yeah, I think um, it's interesting the we use the word egalitarian. It's a word I use often when I talk about Australia to other people. Um, but we are also highly conservative. And I think, you know, sometimes um, we only know our own cultural bubble, don't we? And we don't understand the cultural bubble or the cultural environment in other places. So Novak Djokovic is from Serbia, where, where vaccination is not high. Um, it's not of prime importance. Uh, there are different attitudes to it. Um, having been following Novak Djokovic for many years as he's competed on the circuit and watched, you know, from his very early days to uh, where he sits now, ranked amongst the best in the world, the best ever. Uh, and potentially, if he won the tournament here in Australia, he would become the most decorated player uh, of all time with 21 majors. Currently, he sits level uh, with Rafael Nadal and Roger Federer sitting on 20 each. Um, and so it's been interesting to watch the, the changes and the shifts in Djokovic and what sort of a personality he is. Uh, he's a free thinker. He doesn't like being told what to think, um, but he does read. He does listen to other people. Uh, he's very aware that all of the money he makes and all of the, the um, accolades or, or the, you know, the winning performances, his, his performance can only go on how well his body is responding. His body is everything. So he says he's extremely conscious of everything he puts into his body. And if he's not sure about vaccinations and there's no long-term uh, detail on this yet about the implications of vaccinations, uh, then he's not going to go there. Mm. Um, now, 
other people, are, are, you know, fair enough. They can have their opinions as well. And, you know, they say, but that's not right. This is all to help a, a community and a society and we want to be as safe as possible and we should be vaccinated. You know, these are the two kind of, um, you know, diametrically opposed positions that we, we sit in at the moment. And culturally, between different countries, there are different standards and different beliefs. Right. Uh, Paul, Paul McNamee, former Davis Cup player and former director of the Australian Open, seems to have uh, coined the quip of the, the week with this. He says, uh, whether you like the rules or not, he, meaning Djokovic, he doesn't make the rules. So he deserves his day on court, not in court, in my opinion. Um, he's, is is the, the judge in this case is going to be under a lot of pressure. And I mean, this, this is a big deal because if Djokovic does win the Australian Open after this, this, uh, all this drama, you know, it will forever go down in the, the books. As, you know, that'll be a trivia night, quiz night question for years to come. You know, where was Djokovic when he became the, the all-time Masters uh, leader? Uh, so, I mean, how much pressure is this judge going to be under? Is this going to be a televised yeah, well, trial? I- uh, it's not televised, but journalists will uh, have the capacity because of the, the public interest nature of this particular case. Um, journalists will be able to monitor it. And, and I think members of the general public, you know, in, in days gone by, you'd be able to walk into court and, and watch from the public gallery. Uh, but in this COVID era, everything's pretty much done online, so it takes away that um, option. Uh, but yes, um, there will be pressure. However, you know, judges in court, uh, they're not the type of people that are tuning into social media to see what the reaction is and to see, you know, where, where the, the tide is heading at any particular moment. And uh, their decisions are supposed to be based entirely on an interpretation of the law. So in that regard, it's going to come down to um, who of these two teams, uh, the legal team representing the federal government or the legal team representing Novak Djokovic uh, comes up with the best arguments as to why um, this deportation order or the cancellation of the visa, I should say, uh, should stand or not. And so we'll very much come down to the merits of the arguments provided by each of the legal counsels. You know, Tracy Holmes, uh, you're going to have to take our thanks on behalf of all of Australia for the, the news that you bring us, whether it's the women's shoes melting on the courts at the women's uh, tennis open a couple of years ago, the quarantine housing drama last year, this year, Djokovic and the visa. We'll look forward to calling you maybe a year from now when there's the next, the next drama at the Australian <laughs> Open. <laughs> Thank you so much I'll for joining us. Yeah, Thank all, you. All the way from down under, that's Tracy Holmes, senior journalist at ABC News. Thank you very much. Thanks to everybody who sent in their emails. Thank you to Yuki, in the, our producer, for pulling this together today. James, our main man in the booth. We're looking at the weather today. It is going to be fine and cool. Maximum ten- temperature of 22, fairly balmy. Uh, and we're looking forward to a fantastic weekend. So, Hong Kong, get out there and enjoy it. Thank you very much. Janice, it's been a slice. Thank you. As the risk of severe disease and death from COVID-19 increases with age, vaccines are highly recommended for the elderly. Common side effects are usually mild and temporary. Experts advise that those who have had flu shots before can safely receive COVID-19 vaccines. Even if you have a disease, you should get vaccinated as long as your condition is stable. Just staying home doesn't mean you're free from the risk of infection. Protect yourself. Get vaccinated early. It's 9.31 and now the news with Andrew Shirosky. Two senior officials who've been sent to quarantine have apologized for going to a banquet attended by a woman who later tested preliminary positive for COVID. 
A labor unionist fears unemployment could return to over 7% if a fifth wave of COVID infections persists for more than half a year. And five overnight lockdown and testing operations have concluded, with no cases being found at blocks in Apley Chow, Tai Po, North Point, Happy Valley, and Mahan Shan. Those are the stories we're covering this hour. I'll have more on those and others at 10 o'clock. Stand by for the brew. Uh, sociology prof from the University. A set and costume designer. Great interpreter of Beethoven. And where oh so shy, quiet, and retiring doggy counts. Co-founder of Rockefeller Records. Hello. This is a really for adults. It's not really for kids. Yeah, well, it's fun, you know. Decide for what's happening behind the myth. Good morning. Inter- interviews and also observations. Absolutely no way. On your radio and live online, this is The Morning Brew. morning to you and welcome to Friday here on the Morning Brew. And of course a happy Christmas if you're in Russia. Well, 1010 today, musician and producer Mark Rawson will be with us for more great new tracks, mostly recorded in the bedrooms of Hong Kong and produced via the cloud, of course from some top local bands and soloists. He's also going to tell you about all the gigs that are now cancelled. <laughs> It's Friday, that means 11.10, Danny Hicks will be bringing you this week's sports and all. Today he's going to talk about Novak's Djokovic, tennis, Covid, cricket, Covid, football and... Well, after 12, we're going to roll out the big guns as it is marshy movie time. Join James and Danny this Friday on Facebook Live. This one's for Andrew, who brings out my inner Canadian every time I hear him on Backchat. This is a classic from Russia. Russia. 